This week on a lively experiment, the debate over masking for students this fall intensifies. Why the governor won't pull the trigger on a mandate. And a candid conversation about policing and violence in Providence playing out over one long evening at the city council. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Maureen Moakley, retired political science professor at the University of Rhode Island. Billy Hunt, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island. And Boston Globe reporter, Dan McGowan. Hello everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Governor Dan McKee is under increasing pressure to order all students in Rhode Island to wear masks when they return to the classroom in the fall pressure that so far he has resisted. The governor spoke at length about masking on Tuesday at the first COVID briefing he has held in some time. Here's some of what he had to say. No one at this table is suggesting that the state impose a mask mandate again right now. What we are saying is you or your family need to know the risk of the Delta variant and then if you are vaccinated, Make the decision that's best for you. If you want to wear a mask in public, wear a mask in public. So it's going to be dependent on where you are, but I'd be carrying, I'm, I'm carrying a mask with me. Your number one protection right now is getting vaccinated. There is more and more evidence suggesting that this particular coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, does not confer long-term immunity after natural exposure. So we want you to hear the message. If you've had coronavirus in the past, relying on that alone as the immunity to naturally protect you from the Delta variant is insufficient. The vaccine is another critical layer to add to that. So Billy, I'm sitting there at the, uh, the briefing and I'm thinking, has the governor joined the Libertarian Party? You want to wear a mask? Fine. If you don't want to wear a mask, fine. I thought, have you had discussions with him about bringing him over to your side? No, this is the, the type of discussion that we have as Libertarians, though, is that no, no one's sitting here and saying that we have any problems with people getting vaccinated, people wearing masks. If they want to wear masks, if they feel comfortable with wearing masks, that's entirely your choice. We recommend you have conversations with your primary care physician and, uh, and have that decision. What we are against as in the Libertarian Party is the mask mandates. We don't think that the government should be telling people that they are forced to wear masks they're forcing their children to wear a mask. Here's just something that they said. There's a, a vaccine that's uh, where we are in Rhode Island right now. About 80% of the population is fully vaccinated. I, I think we have enough protection and enough uh, things in place where we can allow people to make those personal health decisions for themselves. Can I just ask you, what do you think about the idea that children are going to school, they're not vaccinated, and they'll be exposed? And we know now with the Delta variant, it's hitting children. So are you suggesting we should not be telling these children that they should wear masks, that the parents should decide? 
Of course it should be up to the parents' decisions about where they are wearing the masks. I mean, there's a lot of uh, issues that are adding into the Delta variant itself, uh, part of which is people are getting back and getting ready to go back to school, so they're getting tested more. So children's are part of that sample that are being tested, and that's why the numbers for the Delta variant are rising as well, too. It, it's something that, again, it, 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 this coronavirus is something that we're going to be living with for a long time. I think it's uh, high time we start learning how to manage and live with this virus in a way that works for everybody and not mandating things from the government and forcing people into this one-size-fits-all solution. Central planning doesn't work for the government, it doesn't work for the economy, and it doesn't work for COVID mandates. What about a parent of a six-year-old that uh, has to send their child to school without a mask when many pe the young people are exposed, they're getting sicker, and you say that it ha you know, wh what's the standard? The parent has the option to the, uh, the parent the has the option, but they have to stay home. Where's, where's the I science mean, and the I, data that you are, are backing this up? In the state of Rhode Island, we haven't had deaths of children. We haven't had a lot of community spread. But they're getting sick. There's new things coming on, and this, the, the spread is through Delta variant. It's a principle beyond that. The idea that parents can say, I'm sending... I'm, one group of parents want their children to wear masks, and the others in the same room... It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's, a, it's a health problem. Let me bring Dan in. Now it becomes a political issue, too, yeah, also. It's very much a political issue. I mean, look, it's inevitable that... I, I think it's inevitable that the governor is going to have to issue some version of a mandate in schools. You know, when you have your competitors potentially in a Democratic primary next year saying it, you've got a lot of growing pressure. The other point to this is, is you know, on one hand, we say we want schools open and we want every kid in seats not learn doing virtual learning. So we're mandating that, right? They have to be in school uh, to, to suggest that they shouldn't necessarily, you know, should, they should have an option when it comes to masks. I mean, if you, if you want to go to virtual learning, fine. That's, that, I think that's, that's no problem. Point. One thing to keep in mind, Dallas, Texas, about 150,000 students. That's basically the state of Rhode Island schools. Dallas, Texas has a mask mandate for schools. The idea that we should be letting 36 different superintendents and school committees get involved in politics and have to deal with parents who are yelling and complaining, it, 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 this should come from the top. I think I, it will come from the top. I completely disagree with that, though, because the, the, the situation in Providence, Central Falls, Woonsocket is completely different from the situation in Portsmouth, uh, you know, Narragansett, and uh, South Kingston. I mean, we're, we're talking about different issues that are affecting different communities. The uh, vaccination rate in some of these uh, poorer areas and these highly urban areas are much lower than they are in some of the rural areas. We have places like Barrington that has a brand new school building that has state-of-the-art ventilation system, as opposed to some of the uh, dilapidated schools we have in the Providence school system. So we need to have it up to the individual cities and towns to be making the decisions that are right for their specific community. We don't mind that. But we're talking about parents, individual. I'm, to, I'm objecting to the idea that individual parents can make the choice. Well, if you're agreeing with the... the I, I get the idea of the community making a decision. But the idea that some kids... If you want to send your child to school, there is a mandate. And if you don't want to abide by it, then go to virtual well, learning. You know, the, the larger issue, too, is... And I, you and I spoke on the radio this week about something else that we'll get to. But I did talk radio, and a lot of people are saying, well, they sent me links about kids on ventilators in Florida and Louisiana and Texas. You know, the problem, a year ago, we had to have national mandates because there was no vaccine. We didn't know about COVID. And to your point... Florida is not Rhode Island. The vaccination rates up here are higher. So the kids going to school here, and what you're saying is the microcosm is Newport is different as Woonsocket is different from Warren. So. Yeah, it's a, I mean, 
No, he's right. Look, Rhode Island's done a better job uh, than a lot of other states when it comes to vaccination. There are still huge gaps in our communities, though, when it comes to vaccination. If you have the chance for kids to potentially be kind of bringing this home, bringing this to their grandparents, things like that, I, I, it seems to make sense to have some sort of mandate. And I go back to this. Last time I was on the show, I got killed for it, Jim. The speed homes. The, no, the kids <laughs> The kids don't mind the masks that much. This is an adult problem. I don't know about that. I, I, don't, I, don't, know I don't know about either. that. I don't know about that. I just that. wanted to mention one other thing. You're talking about differences in communities. What was interesting, I think you wrote about it, was that the Delta variant is showing up in these more rural areas. There's a higher percentage of people in these areas getting the virus um, because maybe they're not vaccinated. So communities are different, but this is a, a really a nefarious virus, and we have to take account of it. I just, again, the, the hospitalizations and the death rates and people testing positive are three different numbers. There's a big question about people who are ending up in the hospital and also testing for positive for COVID, and they're being counted in those numbers as opposed to someone who's solely going to the hospital. And the health department is going to start reclassifying that because That's of right. that, with COVID or because of COVID. The other thing is on the political. I remember 20 years ago, my kids were in elementary school. We had our first cold day. And I don't know if you remember this. Oh, it's too cold to go to school. Of course, old guys like me were like, you know, we trudged. It was 15 below and we went uphill both ways. All of that. But that was the beginning of lawyers getting involved with liability. Because what the Department of Education said was, hey, it's up to you, superintendents. You can do whatever you want, but we strongly recommend. Do you think one superintendent went against that? They were all closed the next day because it was three degrees out. The same thing here, Maureen. What superintendent with the governor saying, I strongly recommend. Who's going to say you don't have to wear a mask? Oh, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think there's be none. I think they'll abide by it. Oh, see, the thing is, I. I it's I, the individual. Do you think parent. some are going to step out? I and, think there will be pressure, and I don't think it's superintendents. I think superintendents are going to say you should do this, and then here's what you get: you get 36 different school committees where, you know. Three parents come in. Because they make the decision. That's right. And yes. three parents come in and say, this is crazy and this is a violation of my rights. And the school committee starts, to, the school committee member says, oh, God, I have to run for re-election next year. This is a political thing. And suddenly they're, they're nervous about the well, decision. Sorry, that's that's the challenge. Point. But that's the position that they ran for and they were elected right. for. And these it's are the also democracy, so I get yeah, it. <laughs> and this is the other thing. How much of the school department budget is already taken care of by federal mandates and state mandates? And they don't even have control for 70, 80 percent of the budget. So they're not even making any hard decisions in their regular role. Here it is something that they need to make a decision that's right for their community and they're going to be answerable to the constituents that got them in office. So I think it's very imperative that they make this decision and they make their, their point no, known. And I don't think it's fair to sit there and say that the average constituent, the average voter who's voting for these elected officials aren't smart enough or don't have the, the knowledge to be able to make these decisions for themselves. I mean, we got to give people a little bit more credit. We're all adults. We're all responsible for our own actions. We need to make sure that we do what's best for ourselves uh, and our families and, and, and worry about ourselves first before worrying about everybody else. The good part about this, I spoke on the radio with a woman. She's a molecular biologist, a doctor. She's not practicing now. Mother of three in East Greenwich. She went to the school committee for the first time because of this issue. And so... She didn't want to wear a mask? She no, didn't want her no, kids... She to wants to have the choice of being able to do that with her kids. She does not want a mandate. Now, that's the issue. Whether you agree with that or not, 
It's getting people involved, like you said, in democracy. We're seeing people, and fortunately, the General Assembly didn't pass that bill about remote meeting. They have to face their people in public now. But what's happening in that meeting? What did she describe in that meeting? You had a situation where the town council is presenting only one side of the argument and allowing only one... The school one, committee, yeah. The school committee, I'm sorry, is only allowing one side of the argument uh, that's basically feeding the predisposed uh, deposition that they're trying to get, that they want to have these mask mandates, and they're not allowing alternate points of view, alternate science, different people up there to give their own uh, opinions. I don't think that's a, a, a function of democracy when we have uh, elected officials uh, suppressing public comment and suppressing different points of view. Quickly, before we, quickly before we move on, the, the politics of this. Let's talk a little about the governor's races mm -hmm. we have done every week. Mm -hmm. You see Nellie Gorbea and Seth Magazine are now piling on. McKee, right or wrong or whatever, what do you see now we're a year out as they're beginning to jockey, the, the governor kind of brushed off Nellie Gorbea and said, you know, this is a, this is a desperate move for relevance. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for that because he is the governor. Yeah, I think, I think the fact is that I think it was a misstep on his part because I think he should have issued. And I think he, he was waiting for, as we go, day after day, week after week, more people are getting very serious about this and realizing it. And I think he thought it would unfold by itself or something like that. But I do think it was a misstep. And I understand the argument that people are making. But um, I think Nellie got in uh, because she had to say something. And it was very political. And, of course, Seth jumps right in. And I don't think it's going to matter in the long run in terms of their campaign. But it's interesting to see how this is affecting you know, initial perceptions of where they what are. What about Alorza now compared to where he was two weeks ago before the big water fruffle, uh, water fire kerfuffle? Well, two or three weeks ago, I'd have said, you know, and I think I wrote this, Jorge Alorza I thought would, would have been a, a very uh, strong candidate for the race. Not to be the governor. I don't think Jorge Alorza is going to be the governor. But someone who, who can command the microphone, who can make people take positions, who can have important conversations about schools or police policy, things like that. Two or three weeks later, he's kind of thrown up on himself. I mean, this has been a, a disaster for him. Um, I still think he has the money and the ego, which all Providence mayors have, to run. So I think he will run for governor. But I, I think he, he's in the tank at this point. In a crowded field, it's going to be a tough uh, rope to hoe for him. I think he has, uh, you know, he was counting on that voter block, and we'll see what happens with, uh, you know, redistricting and stuff like that. But uh, uh, Providence and uh, Woonsocket and the urban cores uh, tend to vote for uh, progressive candidates like Jorge Lorza. So he was hoping on those urban core, but uh, with his missteps that he has lately, I don't think he can recover and get enough votes in the rest of the state uh, to really make up that ground. In Does my this opinion. provide a clear path for the libertarian candidate coming in? <laughs> Are, are, we see a path to victory. Yeah, here? The, it's going to be you. The path to <laughs> we see a path to five percent. The five percent is the goal for the Libertarian Party. We're not looking to win. We're looking to get five percent in the governor's race, and we're looking for our governor candidate. So that's that's what we're working on right now. You heard so. it here first. All right, <laughs> let's let's stay in uh, Providence, Dan. You've been all over this. The city council had a meeting the other night, and. Uh, you had six takeaways. You and I talked about this on the radio. I thought the real winner, because of all the violence going on in Providence, I thought the real winner was Chief Clements. Yeah, very clearly. I mean, look, Chief Clements is probably, I think he said he, he is the, you know, the best Q score of anybody in Providence. He is probably the most trusted single individual in the city of Providence at this point. He's a big brand into himself. Um, and he was able to come out and uh, disagree with the mayor, kind of step away a little bit from the mayor, 
distance himself to some degree without sounding like, you know, a, a person that wanted to light his hair on fire. You know, he made it clear, I need more police officers. I've always wanted more police officers. Um, but he, he has the cachet to do that. That's, that's right. And, and nobody's going to get rid of him. He also, by the way, made the point that is, that is true, is that violent crime is down. You don't, you can't make up these numbers, right? You're, the, the, the aggro shootings and things like that, which are a little bit, ha have seen an uptick lately. But they're not reclassifying numbers. It's not the old story, right? That violent Dean crime, It's not the Dean Esserman story, right? Violent crime to some degree is down. Historically, over the last couple of years, it's, it's really fallen. So he has a good story to tell, and he's saying, I need a little bit more help. I think the city council is going to listen. Oh, I do agree. I mean, I think the idea, of, the idea that he wants more, another class, in yep. other words, another class. And, you know, I think they should pay them more money. I think they should have a, a really hard recruiting, trying to get minorities in. And I also think that they ought to pay them more money. And we need the full complement. I mean, he's got, coming from a position of strength. People, it's really, I know violent crime is down, but there's a peak here now that's going yeah. on. Yeah. And, and that's what grabs the headline. Fear is that's real. What and it, yeah. But it makes people nervous because you see it, it, some of these things are targeted. We're, uh, we're on a Friday morning. There was something this morning. Yes. Somebody got shot at Smith and uh, Chalkstone. Right. Right. But that's going to really hurt the, and the, the business owners who've come through the pandemic. And now they're worried about people don't want to come to Providence. Yep. It's a big problem. Right. They didn't want to come to Providence last summer because of the protests. Now they're not wanting to come to Providence now because of the violence. Uh, it's, it's interesting that the, the defund the, the police crowd uh, you know, Kat Kerwin didn't show up at the city council meeting. I don't think Jorge Olorza was there as well. Is that over now? Oh, yeah. Defund the police. Well, Can we put that in the rearview mirror? See, you know, and again, not to bring this back to a libertarian perspective, but, you know, this is something that uh, defund the police is a, really something that is should be more of a community funded police department. And I think that's the, the position that the, the left tries to push. Uh, but I think the part they're missing is that a lot of the funding for these police departments in the urban core are coming from federal money and they're coming from militarization of the police and certain training programs that are coming in uh, that aren't congruent with what the community's goals are for the policing department. So this is why you're getting this, this friction between uh, the police that they're getting and the police that they want. I think we should be more responsibility on the city to be paying their police force in policing in a manner that the community wants. And the only way to do that is to fund it through yourself. But with the financial problems that the city's having, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen. They're when, be when it, whenever, I, <clears throat> whenever I've covered the city council over the years and I'm on like the seventh story about a city council meeting mm -hmm. and my editor's like, Nobody cares. Go change, you know, change the topic. Um, I always say the only thing that matters in Providence is the eight votes on that city council, the majority of that city council. So right now, the answer to the question of is defund dead? The answer is yes. There's an election next year. You're going to see a bunch of progressives win seats. And suddenly, if they get eight votes, nine votes, you will see changes in the police department uh, because that's what democracy yeah, looks like. I, don't, I, 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 I think you'll see cuts. I think you'll see cuts to the department. I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I think there's a, I think even running for office, if they're going to run for re-election, are they going to run on defunding the police? No, I don't think, I think the incumbents. It's going to be a backdoor. Yeah, right? I think you, what you'll see is, I, I do think you'll see a handful of people that, that do just run to the left. Uh, they'll try to make it, you know, not defund as the issue, right? You run for different reasons. Mm -hmm. But I, I think if you get, now I'm saying if, you get eight or nine city council members who are of the defund or repurpose money kind of uh, mind, I think you will see potential cuts in the department. You're not going to see, you're not going to cut the department in half. That's not what's going to happen. But you will see slow, um, slow and steady cuts, I think, in repurposing of money. Just one last thing before we move on. Uh, um, 
One, I wonder about Chief Clements and, and current, uh, Commissioner Perry. They could retire at any time. Right. I wonder why they still do this. Yeah. The ATV issue is what, you know, that woman getting pulled out of her, she beeps at somebody and all of a sudden she's getting beaten up by somebody else on an ATV. There didn't seem to be a short-term fix to that. Well, why can't they get their arms around this? Yeah, it, it, that's the stunning thing because it's the biggest quality of life issue that facing the city, and now it has ventured into, as you mentioned, a real dangerous situation. I, I mean, I, I do believe the chief and the commissioner when they say it's really hard. It's hard to take a... Because they, <laughs> they can... Down the roads, right? right? And, and they can and elude the police. And, and they're what, not going to shoot them, well, right? Well, right. I was going to say, despite what, you know, talk radio might want the right. callers might want you yeah. can't shoot them off their right. bikes that's right. not what how it works yeah. but they did talk about the fact that they're going to try to block them and that's not right. chase them and that makes makes some sense yeah. but in a sense there's this sort of culture um it's become over the past three years it's like a fun thing and uh that's what they do yeah, let's talk i mean the cops. that that let's talk the cops let's and do I this i'm going to go to outrageous early we do want to talk about redistricting but i wanted to give you guys plenty of time maureen let me start with you outrage or kudo this week um well it's, it's sort of a, a a note of caution or something like that uh, a little bit of an outrage um about a week ago someone from the post uh the washington post published a a, a study or a an essay about the fact that providence was the sixth most corrupt state in the union. It's just not true. And I think we have to get over our, you know, our florid past. It's what do they base that on? Um, I, they feeling. just, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> just feeling. And I had some data, and it shows that if just federal crimes from 1998 to 2008, controlling, and this is an academic study, controlling for population, Rhode Island comes out, 34th in the country. In other words, now we're not talking about malfeasance, we're not talking about patronage, but they're not talking about that in others. Right. They're just talking about felony convictions. They also interviewed, and this is interesting, they also interviewed journalists from every state, and they asked them to rank the level of uh, clean or not clean, they didn't use corruption, yeah. but that kind of thing, on a scale. One being very clean and one, seven being corrupt. Rhode Island came out top. That means that reporters and the general lore continues to suggest that we are a very corrupt yeah. state, and we're not. And I think, you know, I, I love the old stories. I love talking about Quattro. I love all that stuff. But the reality is, I mean, I'm doing some writing, and I said to someone, I'm doing some, uh, a book on Providence, and they said, oh, my God, uh, what a story. <laughs> we are not, we are, there's been significant changes, and the stereotype that we're horribly corrupt is just no longer true. It's the columnists. Don't you think? They're blame, all... Yeah, the opinion makers. But you're right. I've participated in those studies. And, I've, I've, and you know, I, now I can't think about it. I think I will always find myself in the middle. Yes, yeah. there's corruption. Well, there but, is, of course. But you're right. It is more of a kind of in our heads and how we feel than it is necessary. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, I, had, I, was, I went to high school in Massachusetts, and I used to argue with a guy at the college newspaper who was from Maryland. Who's more corrupt? Is it Massachusetts <laughs> or Maryland? They had a whole pile back then with Sparrow Agnew and down the line. What do you have this week? I say now we're competing with New Jersey. I yeah, that's right. It's, a, it's one uh, of these. What do you, you have? Know, we were talking about the mask mandates before. One thing I think we need to really make sure we, we remember is that while Rhode Island does have a really good story when it comes to overall vaccine rates, uh, if you start to look at cities and towns, you see a Tiverton, Woonsocket, Providence, Pawtucket, Burville, Foster, Newport, all 
53% or less when it comes to fully, vaccin uh, fully vaccinated in, the, in this state. That is right around Florida territory. Now, different things going on in Florida, but we're talking about Florida as kind of the epicenter right now of the, the virus and of the resurgence of the virus. Uh, more needs to be done in these cities and towns, both small and large. And it's not necessarily mandates. I, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go. It's with the it, carrot rather than the stick. You gotta get out there and really push. You know, it can't be hard to reach, right? Hard to reach communities can't just be because they speak Spanish. Okay, right. Billy, what do you have? Go, go ahead. <clears throat> but also, that led, lends to the point that spikes in Delta var variants, hospitalizations, are in some of these rural communities. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you would think they would get the message that th there's a low rate of vaccination and there's a huge spike. You never think about places in the rural But areas. then you see, you can't get into people's <coughs> minds, Marie, because, and I take the libertarian view. You want to get the shot? Fine. If you don't, I'm not going to push it. But although I believe in it and I've gotten it, you see these people, both of my parents died of coronavirus, but I'm still not going to get the shot. Uh, how do you argue with that? I mean, there's, you know, there's a certain point that you just you can't. Don't. What do you have this week? So uh, I was 18 years old on September 11th. So my entire li adult life, we've been involved with the wars in the Middle East and with everything that's going on with the withdrawal from Afghanistan right now and the Taliban basically just taking over uh, all of the progress that we made over there, if you can call it progress. I think it's really about time that we as a country reevaluate our uh, interventionalist policy, foreign policies, and really get back to uh, just focusing on protection of the United States and not getting involved with uh, international entanglements that create blowback and more problems for the United States, in, in my opinion. So uh, I just, you know, it's very disheartening to see, hear the news, what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, it just shows that the last 20 years has been a big waste of time, money, and most importantly, American lives. Let's elaborate on that. I, you know what? We'll, we'll save redistricting for the extra. We're doing a lively extra today. Let's talk about that. Because of Afghanistan, you see a trillion dollars. And I know we could, we could do this for hours. But as the political science professor, where we've been, it's so disheartening. But again, it's, it's a trillion dollars that seems almost down the tubes. Yeah, right? I, I agree. I, I, start, I agree with your point about Afghanistan. I don't think that's a message to withdraw from the world. We're not, I mean, I think we have to be involved in NATO. I think we have to be involved in some of these more constructive things. But this was a big misstep. And I mean, it's like, you know, it's you like. You mean getting in 20 years ago? In, yeah. And I then we couldn't get out. And we couldn't get out. And I think that we have, in other words, I think we have to think about those kinds of problems in terms of human, you know, disasters or people being oppressed. I don't think we can fix that. I don't think we can go into democracy building, but I do think we have to be engaged in the world, in the larger world, with the, the you know, the global community. No, why can't we lead by example? Why do we have to lead by force? Oh, I don't, I'm, I'm saying we have to be engaged. I'm not saying we have to have military action. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of everything else we've talked about today, right? It comes down to a lot of uh, sort of how, how public sentiment can, can really push things, right? Mm -hmm. Corruption, mask mm -hmm. mandates, things mm -hmm. like that. Same problem, right? It, it, we, there was a we have to do something mentality after 9-11, mm -hmm. and here we are. Well, mm -hmm. to, just to really touch quickly on that, what happened after 9-11? We ended up with the TSA and all of uh, you know, the NSA. The, the Patriot the, Act. The Patriot Act, everything like that. Uh, it scares me to death what's going to happen as a result of the coronavirus and what federal department's going to be involved and created that's going to have a, a significant impact on our daily lives going forward, and that just scares me to death. What do you think the effect is on Biden? 
because, you know, you would think the, it's a popular argument. We've spent all this money. George Bush got us into the war. He's getting some blowback on this because we see what's happening to the, the fee, uh, strides for women over there and yep. the Taliban's coming in and, you know, it's changing their world. What political effect does this have on gonna, the president? I think it's going to hurt him. In other words, the only thing is I, I don't think see the Republicans arguing against against trying to help people, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's going to hurt him. I think it's going to be, I think they're going to use that. They're going to use the border. In the midterms. In the midterms, I think. It's an interesting dilemma, though, for, particularly for, I think, the Republicans, the way the party has shifted, certainly under President Trump, uh, you know, former President Trump, is there's this general resistance to, uh, you know, foreign interference or, or going and, in, 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 you know, getting involved in these things. Whereas historically, you'd have said, Republicans would have said, the Democrat is soft on, you know, uh, on these issues and we're going to come in and we want force. Things have shifted a little bit. And I think Biden's going to face a lot of pressure probably from both sides. Yeah, I think that's going to be an issue. I think it's going to be a one issue that they can lead into. I mean, I think yeah. that and the border are going to be big issues. Great. All right, folks, i got to hold you there, but it's not over yet. We're going to do a lively extra. For those of you who are leaving us now, Dan and Maureen and Billy, thank you. Always a spirited discussion. For the rest of you, go right now to ripbs.org slash lively. We still have to talk about redistricting. It's going to be a little bit of a wonky discussion, but that's okay because we have three wonks on the uh, on the panel. Um, come back next week. Uh, you never know what's going to happen, but we'll be here to cover it. Have a great weekend and come back as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.